Why Sim Kigat Sikramhana Gans Gubawilsik, chiefs, matriarchs, and the young people. As a Niska, the land is not only a place to dwell, but it is deeply rooted to our Adawa, our stories, and our history, our Ayu, our Niska laws, and more importantly, it holds the key to our healing. Stop Ecoside Canada. Welcome to another edition of the Stop Ecoside Canada podcast series, where we learn more about protecting the future of life on Earth. Mass damage and destruction of nature is called ecocide. In most of the world, it's legally permitted. This can't go on. It's time to change the rules. It's time to make ecocide an international crime. Stop ecocide, change the law, protect the Earth. Hello, my name is R.G. Morse. Welcome to another Stop Ecoside Canada podcast. I had the unique honor of being a delegate to the first ever UN Conference on the Environment held in Stockholm, Sweden in 1972. That event spawned a counter-conference intended by activists rather than heads of state and other government leaders, somewhat jocularly referred to as Woodstockholm. It's 49 years since Stockholm, and while things may have changed in the world, the environment has certainly not improved. Against that backdrop, the 26th UN Global Environmental Conference seemed by many as one of the last chances to put the world on track to fulfill the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement and tackle the climate emergency, scheduled to take place in 2020, was postponed, ostensibly due to covid until this November in Glasgow. Obviously, this left no opportunity for a physical version of Wood Stockholm. Instead, when the postponement was announced, hundreds of young people from almost 150 countries around the world stepped up and said, the climate emergency cannot wait. Out of this was born Mock COP26, a virtual coming together of committed, articulate, passionate young people from all over the world. I'm joined today by two of them. Aishwarya Putur is a 16-year-old Indian-Canadian climate justice activist from Oakville, Ontario. She organizes campaigns and actions with various climate groups, including Fridays for Future Digital, Climate Strike Canada, and, of course, Mock COP26. She was a speaker on climate education at the Mock COP26 event. And Malika Collette is an 18-year-old climate activist based just outside of Peterborough, Ontario. She has just finished high school and will be taking a gap year next year. Malika organizes with Climate Strike Canada and with Mock COP26, where she is a campaign coordinator along with seven other students internationally. Ashwarya, Malaika, 
Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Same here. Let's begin by talking a bit how and why you have become so engaged with environmental issues. Malika, let's start with you. Why are you so passionate about the environment? For me, I see this as an issue that will define not only my future, but also my present with so many disasters affecting people all over the world um, today, including now in Canada, as we can see most recently with fires and heat waves. So this is an issue that scares me and that drives me to take action um, and join the youth movement across the world to do everything I can before it's too late. And Aishwarya, why are you so passionate about the environment? Yeah, well, for me, I see in the environment and the climate crisis as not just an environmental issue, but a political, social issue, a gender equality issue, an issue of LGBTQ plus rights. It's so intersectional, and that's why it's so important to fight for our climate and to ensure that we actually have a livable future. Like, I want my kids, my grandkids, whenever I have them, to actually have a future that exists, someplace that they can go to out in nature, somewhere that they can enjoy, right? And when we talk about the climate crisis, again, just as Malika said, it's not just about the future. It's also about the present because millions of people across the world are currently facing the impacts of the climate crisis. And it's always marginalized communities who face the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And therefore, as a person who is South Asian, as a person who is queer, as a woman, um, and a part of many marginalized communities, I think it is my responsibility and a privilege to be fighting for the climate crisis and ensuring that I and many others and many other generations have a future that is fit for us. I'm curious how something as big and, of course, global as Mock Cop 26 came about. How, how did this all come together in the wake of the official conference being postponed last year? Malika, can you begin to tackle that? So it originally started, the idea for Mock Cop 26 started from a, a group in the United Kingdom called Teach the Future. And they were basically, they're a, they're a climate education group in the UK. And it kind of came up at one of their meetings, like, so COP26 is going to be canceled here in the UK, but what if we do our own? And then that kind of, that idea just sparked and they just kept going with it and it kept growing. And then there was hundreds of volunteers from all around the world. And then eventually there was student staff hired to work on the project. So it just started from an idea from a group in the UK and then it grew to be an international conference, which is pretty amazing. So Aishwarya, I'm assuming based on what Malika just said that that from the UK, social media was used to reach out to youth organizations elsewhere and that spread, is that right? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that's how I got involved. I saw a post on Instagram and I was like, hey, this is something I can get involved in. This is something that I'm interested in. And I applied to be a speaker on climate education and I did get selected. And I'm very grateful to be sitting here today talking about it. This movement, let's call it, began in the UK, spread globally. How long did this take? And when did Mock Cop 26 actually 
hit the internet. Malika? Yeah, so the idea came about last summer after news broke that COP26 was going to be postponed by a full year. Um, so throughout last summer, volunteers started getting on board and slowly the word about mock COP started to grow. Um, but it wasn't until about September when official planning for the event started. Um, and then the event itself took place in the last two weeks of November of 2020. So the first kind of September and October, beginning of November was planning for the conference. And then it was a two-week online conference the end of November. A two-week conference. What was that like, Ashwarya? It sounds slightly unwieldy. Did it go off smoothly? Well, because I was a speaker, I wasn't present for every single bit of it, but I was in tune and updated on everything. Um, and as they were posting all of the delegate speeches online, on YouTube, I kept tuning in because even though I know a two-week conference sounds really stressful and something that like, you know, I don't want to give my time two, two entire weeks, but watching those delegates speak, there were around, I think, 330 delegates, right, from over 140 countries. So seeing all of those people come together for one cause and all of them speaking from various different perspectives, various different backgrounds was honestly very inspirational. And I was at, a, at that time, you know, I was involved with activism, very, very involved. And sometimes when you're so involved with various groups and various campaigns there are times when you feel like is what I'm doing really worth it you know will there be change will I see change and you have those times of guilt and times of anxiety and worry and just I feel like that conference really uplifted my spirits definitely and so I was involved in the speech speeches part of it, I guess you could call it, um, because I did my speech on climate education and then I was called in for a panel discussion um, with various other speakers. And that panel discussion, I still am in contact with people who were there and also spoke. And so I made friends through that conference. Um, it lifted up my spirits and it really propelled me to take more action for our future and for our world in general. So yeah, definitely. I think Mock Cop 26, in my opinion, was a success and I'm really excited to see where it goes from here. All right. So let's talk a bit about some of the 18 policies that emerged out of Mock Cop 26 resulting in what is essentially a recommended treaty, correct? Yeah. So let's start with climate education. Uh, let me first read a couple of highlights on climate education from the Mock COP26 treaty. Each country shall ensure that all school-aged children, regardless of how they are schooled, are provided with comprehensive and up-to-date teaching regarding the climate emergency and ecological crisis. And in another clause, each country shall ensure that all school-aged children, regardless of how they are schooled, are given the opportunity to learn about their connection with nature, including but not limited to drawing upon the knowledge and practices of indigenous peoples. Ashwarya, you've mentioned that you spoke to this issue of climate education during mock-up 26. So obviously this is a subject you're keenly interested in. Can you speak to 
to these two clauses that I just read? So, okay, let's take up on the first clause here, which is on how students and children of all ages need to be updated, right, regularly about the climate emergency. Now, something that I've felt and something that I also talked about in my speech was how children and students are often only taught about the climate crisis and ecological destruction only in certain subjects like science and geography, right? And even then, like in my personal education, it wasn't even an entire unit. It was it was in a sub it was a subtopic within this broad unit about nature, right? Now nature can cover many things. And when you're only spending, let's say, a day or two talking about the climate crisis, which is literally impending doom upon us in the coming years to come, that's insane. That's not okay. We need to do more. Teachers, and it's not even the teacher's fault, really, because this is where curriculum comes in, and this is where systems and our governments come in, right? Because they need to give teachers the resources to talk about these issues. They need to ensure that we're we have an entire unit within the curriculum to talk about the climate crisis. And it's not just about the three R's, recycling and reusing, which is often what um, education about climate change consists of. It's not just that. It, we need to talk about how major corporations such as the fossil fuel industry are really fueling the climate crisis and how they have been for generations upon generations and how colonization is interconnected with this. Now, this is where the second clause comes in here and how we need to take upon the knowledge and practices of Indigenous peoples because they've been living on this land for centuries in harmony with nature. And it's only when colonization happened um, that, you know, the Industrial Revolution occurred and so many environmentally destructive projects started popping up. And so that's when we need to ensure that we're talking about these certain practices of Indigenous peoples that actually ensure that we're um, making our environment non-destructive right and we're ensuring that whatever we do as individuals and within our system is not hurting the environment and so it hurts me to see when in history lessons all we do is talk about you know the white experience and wars and when we talk about these things it's always through a white man's perspective which is not okay because all of this education needs to be intersectional and needs to be taught through many different perspectives. Yeah, so as a person whose ancestors were previously colonized, um, it hurts me to see when in history lessons, all they talk about is the perspective of history through the white man's eye. And that's not okay, because historical events really connect to what's happening right now and that is why education needs to be so intersectional and that's what the second clause is kind of talking about and so climate education needs to ensure that it's not just about an individual and what an individual can do but it's about our systems it's 
intersectional. It's about people of color. It involves environmental racism. It involves how, how political, social, and economically um, connected all of these issues are within the climate crisis. And last, but definitely not the least, we need to ensure that the climate education our children receive is one in which they are being we need to ensure that the climate education our children receive is one in which they are enlightened and hopeful for the future not one where they're like oh there's a climate their climate crisis exists we won't exist in the future there's no use in fighting right because i think when when you suddenly put upon this entire topic and discussion of dooming of the world right people often just go immediately to oh no that's it this is it this is the end and so especially with young children like for example i have a younger sister myself and you know when you were talking about this she was like wait is that it so is the world going to end and i was like no no there's more there's more right so i think when we're talking about these topics we need to approach them in a way that we're ensuring we're involving actions that these children can take right in a way that they cannot deny that this science exists. They cannot deny that this issue exists. And in a way that they are pushed towards creating change. And, you know, they actually want to do it. And I think all of that compiled together is what is how we can ensure climate education is at its best in nationally and internationally. I want to go back to the subject of indigenous peoples. I was struck in reading through the proposed treaty how often the rights and needs of the planet's indigenous peoples are referenced. For example, under the proposed treaty's climate justice policy, we find the following clause. Each country shall extend legal protection to the rights of indigenous peoples, including their land way of life, and livelihoods supporting the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Each country shall also implement appropriate and reasonable mechanisms for Indigenous peoples to be recognized as rights holders, such as identity certificates. Can you speak to this? We, we know this is a huge issue throughout the Western Hemisphere, everywhere on the planet, really. Malika, can you take this on, please? Yeah, for sure. So a big part of Mock COP26 was prioritizing the voices of Indigenous people and those that are often marginalized, because what we were trying to do was not only replicate COP, um, the COP events online run by youth, but also improve them and show the world how we would run them if young people were running them. So we had equal representation or even more of females and non-binary people. We had indigenous voices, we had global South voices. And I think that really is shown here in the treaty, as you said, that this is a huge issue. That's not, unfortunately not there when we talk about cops in, in person. The cops that normally happen don't have that representation of indigenous people, indigenous voices, global South voices are just not at the table even though those are the people that are already being hit and already losing their lives to this crisis. So it's certainly a really important topic um, that we had during our event. And yeah, throughout this treaty and this, um, this one clause in particular, um, like respecting their, their land and their lives, because 
they are the ones that have lived on this land, specifically here in Canada, for centuries. And they know how to live in harmony with the land. They know how to live sustainably and how to live cohesively with the land and meet their needs. Um, and that's not what the rest of the world is doing. So we have so much to learn from them and so much respect that needs to be given to them. And we really need to start listening to their voices more. So it was certainly a strong theme and throughout the event and within the treaty. Now let's zero in on something. I understand the Canadian Mock COP26 contingent has decided to particularly focus on, and I'm thinking of ecocide. Here's the relevant recommendation from the Climate Justice Policy Treaty recommendations. Each country shall introduce a law making the wholesale and deliberate destruction of environments upon which humanity depends a criminal offense of ecocide with penalties appropriate to its severity and consequences for humanity. And in addition, shall support the introduction of a new international crime of ecocide capable of prosecution as a crime in the International Criminal Court. This, if implemented, would be obviously an incredibly powerful tool. Is it realistic to expect something like this will be adopted by governments around the world? What are the chances, in your opinion, of seeing ecocide codified as a prosecutable offense under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court? And finally, why does all this matter so much to young people? For me personally, I think that this type of law may be possible in the future. I do believe that with hard campaigning and understanding and organizing, massive organizing, it may be possible. I don't think it'll be possible probably in this year or maybe the next, but at least in two or three years time, I think we will achieve some achievements within this law itself. Because as you can see, like recently, there was a win against a court case in Australia by a few um, students and a nun who filed a case against the Australian government um, because of because of how they've been investing in coal, coal mines and how these coal mines affect um, students and affect children negatively, right? And so this entire court case was actually won by these activists. And these activists are just like us. They're 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. They're not, they're not professionals. They're not people with doctorates or PhDs. They're just students who care about the world and who care about the environment. And if they achieved an entire court case against the government, which is huge, a huge win, I believe that we can do something similar in Canada and internationally as well. Just imagining the power of so many young people and adults alike across so many different countries is massive and it's huge and it's wonderful. And so, yeah, I do believe that it's possible. I don't think it's it will be done easily. Definitely not. Um, it will take some very, very organized campaigning in order to do that. Um, now, for the other questions that you asked, why is this law so important? Well, what is ecocide? The mass destruction of the environment, right? And so it's so important because of several things. 
Now, first of all, the mass destruction of environments are usually done by corporations and companies who are already very wealthy, right? And people who own these companies are usually billionaires. They're people who have all the privilege in the world, right? And many people who work for these companies are people who live paycheck to paycheck, right? They're people who are not exactly treated well within their work environment. And so just thinking about it in an ethical way, this is not okay. It's not okay that these billionaires, that these huge, massive corporations can use not just our environment, but also our people as resources for their own private gain. And so this just this just strengthens the wealth gap. It just strengthens the wealth gap and makes the difference between between people who are middle class and people who are rich even bigger, which all again intersects within various issues for environment and political and social issues. Right. There's no question that it's a it's a tangled and complex web, isn't it? So Malika, briefly, what's your take on this, the concept of ecocide and the possibility of seeing it codified before the International Criminal Court and why something like this matters, especially to young people. Yeah, absolutely. Just like Aishwarya just said, their court systems are beginning to see more and more wins recently. There was another one in Germany, um, and even ones in Canada that are progressing farther than we've ever seen before. So that really gives me hope to see that if the politicians aren't going to be making the change, when we get to the court levels, maybe that's where we're going to start to see the change that's really needed. So although it is up to the government and those in power in Canada to adopt the national ecocide law, I do have hope that if they see enough other countries adopting it, as some others are already progressing on it, I know Belgium and others in Europe have progressed on adopting ecocide or pushing for it at the international level. I think that at, at a certain point, Canada will, will fall for the peer pressure of seeing enough other countries doing it and not want to be that one that one global north country or that one country left out that's not adopting it. So I think just like Aishwarya said, it's really about lobbying. It's about campaigning and focusing on the countries that are going to do it and showing Canada that they can be and they have to be a true climate leader and adopt this because it's it's the destruction of the environment. It's a mass destruction of our environment. And we need a law for that. We have laws for all kinds of other things, but to not have a law protecting our natural environment against mass destruction is it's so wrong. And so I think to have this law implemented would really protect so much of the natural beauty in Canada that so many people value and so many people recognize as Canadian lands and essentially internationally as well, because I do have hope that it will get done at the international level. It might not be within a few months or this year, but I think the pressure will be there. And if enough governments are putting this pressure on and enough young people are persistent in pressuring them to adopt it at an international level, I do think that it can happen there as well. So it's an incredibly important policy and law, and I hope to see it adopted soon. Well, let's end on that note of some hope. As Glasgow approaches, this November, what are the prospects of the adults in the global room? And I put quotes around the word adults paying heed to Mock COP26's recommendations. Are, are you optimistic, pessimistic, a bit of both perhaps, and why? 
And just in very brief segments, I'm going to challenge each of you to answer those questions. And I'll start with Aishwarya. I'd say it's a bit of both. I believe that campaigning in many countries has been um, successful and therefore some world leaders, quote unquote, may look at it and may um, actually ensure Mokkab is within that conversation and others may not. So yeah, it's a bit of both. Malika? I agree as well. I think it's a both. It's a bit of optimism and pessimism. There's going to be so many governments that don't that don't want to look at it. They see us as just children and don't take us seriously, which is unfortunate. But I think at the same time, there are a lot of governments that and ministers around the world that are beginning to meet with young people about this treaty. And we've seen a lot of progression in different countries where they're seeing climate bills passed and they're having meetings with their environment ministers. So if MOCOP isn't necessarily given a full stage or whatnot at COP, we do hope to represent our treaty in some way at the event. Um, but I also think a big, an important part for us is from now until November and those meetings that we're going to have with politicians to pressure them because it's all about what they do before COP really and the kind of decisions they're ready to make and the ambition they're ready to bring come November. Thank you for that. So in closing, if any of our listeners, obviously young listeners, but even not so young listeners would like to help, would like to become part of the solution stop being part of the problem, how can they connect with MockCop26? Is there a website, for example, that they can turn to? Yeah, for sure. You can learn all about MockCop and see the full treaty with the 18 policies at mockcop.org. And you can also follow us on social media at mockcop26. I've been speaking today with Aishwarya Putur, a 16-year-old Indo-Canadian climate justice activist who joined us from Oakville, Ontario, and Malika Collette, an 18-year-old climate activist who spoke with us from just outside Peterborough, Ontario. Aishwarya, Malika, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to an episode of Stop Ecocide, Change the Law, Change the World. This series is executive produced by Donna Grace Campbell for Stop Ecocide Canada, with music courtesy of Kaylee Watts. For more information, find us online at stopecocide.ca. Thanks so much for listening.